You wanna finish what you started? You came to the right place. Them girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, Okay, welcome to another episode of The New Look with uh, a guest I have been badgering uh, for months to come on this podcast. Man, I greatly admire the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David Berger. General, how are you, sir? I'm doing great, Congressman. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great, but let us I need to get some awkwardness out of the way uh, first. Yeah. I've been in Congress for four years. I have never gotten over this because uh, in my heart, I'm still a, a company-grade officer in the Marine Corps. And so the mere sighting of a brigadier general, let alone a four-star general, let alone the commandant of the Marine Corps was enough to send us into a frenzy of fear and anxiety. And so when I see you, I think, commandant, sir, I snap to attention, but I've awkwardly gotten elected to Congress. And so I'm not quite sure how to navigate this, uh, this relationship here. Well, if you're, uh, uh, if you're like most of the rest of us, you're lucky if you froze in place because most of us went the other way. If the colonel walked by, you're like, hell no, I'm out of here. <laughs> There's no good thing going to happen here because either I'm in trouble or I'm going to get skylighted by my buddy. So I'm just going to walk the other direction. I, uh, my most embarrassing moment, potentially my entire Marine Corps career happened at officer candidate school. Mm. I swear this was not my fault. I, we were running the endurance course or something like that. Right. And there was a group of Marines, enlisted Marines there running the course. And like, they went to the wrong location. And so about half of us got sent down the wrong path and it right. screwed up the course. And so I got lost and it took me about 20 minutes before I realized I was not on the right path. And I ran into the, the CEO of, of oh. officer candidate school. So I wasn't even an officer then. And so I had to stop and ask the, uh, who, the, a full bird colonel what the hell was going on. And I definitely heard about that from the drill instructors later on. I'm sure it was never remembered like days, days later gone, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, so where does the story begin for you, uh, General Berger? Where, where are you from and, and what kind of um, families you grew up in? Was it a military family? Was not. Uh, I grew up in Maryland. My dad um, was in the Air Force for a couple of years, few years as a uh, officer in the like the hate in the. This is the mid fifties kind of time frame as a uh, engineer, electrical engineer, and then went into when they into the National Security Agency like in the early days when nobody you know nobody knew nobody talked about it. So he worked at Fort Meade all the way for 30 some years and retired from there. And I don't think he, I, I didn't know what he did probably till I was a captain. He just went to Fort Meade and came home and that was sort of all that anybody knew. But we had, we, I grew up on a farm in Maryland and uh, my dad went to Fort Meade and my mom ran our farm and probably like you, uh, not afraid of very many things as a Marine. Except for except for my mom, and even now, you know, I wouldn't cross her. If I got sideways with her, she'd put me down like a like probably I would deserve. But like she did, like she like she was capable of back then. So I uh, all of my values uh, growing up came from I I am so fortunate because I had the mom and dad and family you know that other people never had. I had that. So I had a, my dad is the smartest person I have ever known. And uh, my mom has all the fortitude and strength and decisiveness and all I'd like to have. Um, had, uh, so we, I grew up on a farm. 
and uh, not a big farm, but a farm in Maryland. And from there, like in high school, my dad was an engineer. And, and so I think, well, I should, I should try that. I should go to the college. And my and dad told me, what you should do is apply for ROTC because they'll pay for college. And we weren't poor, but I thought that's pretty great idea. So I applied for Air Force and Navy and, and Army ROTC and ended up with a Navy ROTC scholarship. And that lasted all of one year at uh, Tulane. Well, actually, I barely lasted one year, the first year in New Orleans, just to be flat out honest. But fortunately for me, there was, a, there was some kind of, you know, the planets aligned because there was a gunnery sergeant at, uh, at, to, at the NROTC unit. And I, I had never met a Marine, never in high school, no recruiter, nothing. Didn't know anything about the military or Marines. Didn't know anything until I met him. And then it was like, whatever that is, you know, when you run across that, that's whatever that is, I want sort of, that's my goal. So that, then I tried to switch into the Marine Corps and dig out of uh, academic probation at the same time. So af after all that, then uh, that was my that was my background. I, I only went to the military because they paid for college and my dad suggested they will pay for that. And I only went into the Marine Corps because uh, um, I ran a, a gunny and that was holy cow. I'd never seen anything like that, but that was what I wanted to do. To go back uh, to uh, Maryland and, and the farm. Yeah. So did you have a, a long list of, of farm responsibilities uh, yeah. as a kid growing up? Yeah, we had horses and cattle and chickens and God knows what else. And probably like most, uh, most farmers, I don't think we were un unusual, but yeah, you had to do, you had daily chores that you, when on a farm, you can't take a day off. So you have to feed, you have to, you have to do all those things every single day. So it's good for me, you know, values wise, I didn't get anything new from the Marine Corps. They, they certainly strengthened it, but what I had, I, I was raised that way. And then in college, uh, yeah. I, I too had, uh, let's say a lackluster freshman year of college. Um, the hero's journey sort of, I, I went into the wilderness for a while and, and then ah, nice. I have a theory that it actually makes for a better Marine Corps officer to have a fulsome <laughs> civilian college experience as opposed to the ring knockers who are just all business all the time in, in Annapolis. But I don't, I'm not, you don't have to comment on whether that that's true. I think it's, I'd endorse that theory. It's, it's very helpful if your back's against the wall and you're like on a 1.9 grade point average. And, you know, okay. <laughs> that, I mean, it's, it's impressive. You actually have to be trying in a weird way to get it down to that level. It's impressive <laughs> in its own right. Um, okay, so you uh, so didn't know much about the Marine Corps, met a gunnery sergeant. Um, right. So, so was your commissioning source, uh, was it PLC back then or how did that, how did it work? It was, it was, uh, NROTC for me. Oh, okay. That's right. Yeah. So NROTC. Yeah. And then when you went in, when you finished college and you went to the basic school, did mm -hmm. you have a sense of, you know, I want to be in this MOS or that MOS or, or how did you approach that? None. I, I didn't have any sense at all, uh, about what, to, what I was going to go into. So I, you get to the basic school as, as you did. And I think it was probably the instructors at the, the basic school at that time. This, is, this would be 1980, 81. And uh, the instructors there were sort of the carryovers from Vietnam. And 
they weren't, you know, sitting around on a camp stool telling all their Vietnam stories, but it was pretty clear to me, like the infantry part is being outdoors. It's physical. And the more I tried to learn about it and listen to it, like that's sort of what I, yeah, that's probably what I want to do. Um, how did it back then? How did, did it work similarly where they would, you know, you'd be ranked at TBS depending on your performance and they do a quality spread. They break the company into thirds and then you same rank way. same yep. exact way. Same um, exact way. Yeah. What would you say uh, the state of the Marine Corps was when you entered in, in the early eighties? Was there still a Vietnam hangover? Um, what, what, what was, what was the vibe in, in the fleet Marine Force back then? It was not a Vietnam hangover, I would say. I think my the people before me by probably four or five years, absolutely, yeah, where they were. You and I have heard the stories about them walking on, you know, on duty at night, walking through the barracks, armed for a reason, and racial fights and drugs and all. But I think the, the combination of uh, General Barrow and just the, all the right decisions that the senior leaders made long before you and me put us on the right path. So I think in the 80, 81, it was just, it was a very clear awareness that the Soviet Union was the big threat and the nation had a focus on, um, that's pretty, that's really serious business. And we were not in a funk or a sort of a hangover from Vietnam. It had turned, already turned the corner by then. I had this moment when I, um, it didn't happen at OCS for me. It happened, I think, the second night of TBS where I was laying there in my bunk and it just hit me like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Like, I, I don't, and it was a feeling of like, I don't know, I don't know if I can hack it. Like, am I going to survive? Uh, am I going to be a decent officer? Um, and then, you know, over time, you kind of get some confidence and you make mistakes along the way. But did you have such a moment? And conversely, um, what was the moment where you felt like, all right, this is, this is, I'm doing the right thing. I, I being a Marine Corps infantry officer is what, what I should be doing right now. I'm, I'm sure I probably did have that moment. I don't recall it, but I'm sure there was one or one or two of those moments where what am I doing here? Um, not in a sense of, I can't hack it like your point, like your point, or I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but really the, the Marine Corps in, in kind of imbues in us this legacy of giants that came before, and you're not sure, holy mackerel, you know. I'm not sure I could ever measure up to well, you know, everything that they pass on to us. So in that sense, sure. You know, where did, where did, at what points do you really get your confidence? There are certainly a few, uh, a few points. I, I was fortunate in the first few years to be in an infantry battalion that deployed a couple times. So there where you go, in my case, where you went to Japan and Korea and Thailand and you, you all of a sudden you see all the other, you know, parts of the world and you go and they're Marine Corps and you go, wow, they all want to be like us. So this is all right because they're trying to emulate, trying to mimic what the U.S. Marine Corps is. So in that sense, it was a really good feeling. I think um, certainly you make a, just a ton of mistakes as a, as a as a junior officer but as as you have pointed out before and i believe it's true also as long as you have the basics you're humble enough to admit it you're confident you don't confuse humility with a lack of confidence at all you're just straightforward with them you don't try to be them you don't hang out with them on saturday night but they, just all the basics that they teach us i think they you're confident my, my confidence is certainly over time built yeah 
And were you taking it kind of in two, three year increments early on in your career? Uh, and so what was the moment at which you decided, okay, I'm going to make a, a full on career of this? Actually, for me, I think it's different. And if you ask uh, my wife, uh, Donna, she, I think she would tell you the same. Instead of a moment, for me, we sort of had a pack. Um, I don't remember at what stage, but it was somewhere in the, in the lieutenant kind of early captain stage where, and I don't, I don't even know why I came up with this, but I said, if I ever have three days in a row where I don't want to go to work, then I'll get out happy, a happy man and really uh, you know, proud of what, what, my, what a little contribution I made. So I had, sure, but I never had three in a row where I just don't want to go put my uniform on and go in. And that's, so it's not a day for me. It's a, I figured everybody has bumps along the way, but if three days in a row, if you're hating to go to work, okay, it's time to do something else. And I haven't had, haven't had three days in a row. That's amazing. Um, and a testament to your wife that she was willing to serve the country in, by letting you do this uh, job for, for so long. Um, okay, I'm, sk I'm skipping over a lot of your very illustrious career because we have a lot to talk about. But it's been called a lot of things, but not illustrious, but go ahead. <laughs> um, I, uh, okay, so talk a little bit about the, the process through which you became commandant of the Marine Corps. Did it surprise you when you were in contention for the job? How does that work? It's a complete mystery to me. Um, and did you come into the job with some of the ideas about the, the planning guidance and, and a lot of the transformations you're trying to effectuate right now? It was a secret to me too, but there, I did, uh, there's a book, um, I have to find the name of it. I have it at home, but it describes the process of how this works written years, years, years ago. But in a nutshell, I think every single commandant takes it as a big part of their job is to build a wide and deep enough bench so that it's really hard decision for the next uh, secretary of the Navy and secretary of defense and presidents makes it, make it really hard for them. Give them a wide menu. So I, I think my predecessor, General Neller, did exactly that. Could have picked any one of these four or five. All of them would have been just, you know, plenty good. So I don't think in that aspect there's anything particular about me. How the process worked, um, I don't know because uh, the commandant spoke with the civilian leadership here. And the next um, step in that uh, I heard was you may, you may be interviewed, which I was. Um, and I'm sure I, I was not the only one, but I didn't call up all my buddies like, hey, how'd you do? Because at that stage, it's all about the service and not about your, you are yourself, you know. And you all not know about, each other at that stage. Yeah, we all know each other exactly. And we would support any of us. It would be awesome. And, and difference, just one aspect of this that's not widely known at all is But it's germane to this, this generals asked to resign. They write a letter. We write a letter to the commandant asking to resign. And uh, here's the logic behind that is the commandant never has to tell anybody to go home. They've already asked. So in our world, it is all about service, as you, as you, as you know. And, the, and you're reminded of that as you ask the commandant every single year to retire. It's not about you. It's about. Wow. 
what's best for the core, what's best for the country. So I have an interview with the Secretary of the Navy and an interview with the Secretary of Defense and an interview with the President. And that's, I don't know who else they interviewed. I, I really don't know. And to your second part about, you know, what prior to that, did I come in with um, already some notion, some ideas? Absolutely, yes. And this is, I think, the product of just assignments more as much as anything else, not my brilliance. But I'd say two things. First, I think the combination of schooling for me in the Marine Corps Definitive was the, or formative was the School of Advanced Warfighting as a major. And second, the opportunity to go to Johns Hopkins SICE was the second part. The combination of those two, in other words, they didn't make me smarter. What they did is teach me how to think so, um, and, and be a critical uh, thinker at that. So I, th I attribute part of it to, to that. The rest is assignments. The opportunity to command in, in California of uh, 1st Marine Expeditionary Force and then in Hawaii of all the Marine forces in the Pacific and then to go to Quantico to be the commanding general in charge of all the, the development part of the Marine Corps, the future part of the Marine Corps, just set me up exactly well to know the threats in the future, clear picture of China and where the country should view that as a, as a competitor and and all the the parts at Quantico about you know how do you build a Marine Corps for a future that was all of that yes I was not coming in cold at all. So let's uh, let's dig into that um, and and just with the goal of kind of the audience being the seven hundred fifty thousand people I work for in Northeast Wisconsin not the not the yeah. geeks in the Pentagon or uh, fellow Marines yeah maybe in simplest terms possible kind of how what was the Marine Corps doing and, and where did you think it needed to go or, or do things differently? Yeah. Well, for us, uh, you're, you were, you are part of that background. So, you know, a, a chapter or two in that story, we have clearly been focused on what the nation needed us to do in terms of, uh, counterinsurgency in the Middle East for, 15, almost 20 years. And so that formed what our focus was because we do, the Marine Corps does what the nation needs us to do at any point in time. We're uniquely, in, by law, as you, as you know, the, the, we do what the president directs, which is pretty open-ended. We can, we will do what, we need, what needs done. So we were very, very good and very focused on counterinsurgency in, a, in the Middle East, so both parts of that, the role and the location. We had a clear focus, very good at that. But it was clear to me, anchored again by uh, a couple of years in, in Hawaii, commanding all the forces in the Pacific and all the travel that you do, it was very clear from, from Johns Hopkins, where I kind of minored in China, all the way to 10 years later or whatever it was in, in Hawaii, you could clearly, I could very clearly see where China was going and that we were not awake to that reality. So shaping, you know, where the Marine Corps must go driven by an assessment of what the, what the adversaries were and what we needed to do with, with other partners and allies to get there from here. We have to change. We are not built today as a Marine Corps 
for where we must be in the future. We're fine this afternoon. Just, just to, and you know this to be true. If there was a, a crisis anywhere in the world this afternoon today, we can handle it. But that's my, my bigger job is to make sure that we're prepared five, six, ten years into the future. And those are decisions we have to make now. So in simplest terms, you know, after a couple decades of doing counterterrorism, counterinsurgency in the Middle East, yeah. we now find ourselves in an environment where our, our pacing threat is China yes. in a different region of the world, the Indo-Pacific, and therefore the Marine Corps in order to um, deter China or, or play a role in deterring China with the joint services needs to do things uh, differently. So what would, what some of those, um, what does that mean in terms of some things we need to stop doing or systems we no longer need to invest in and things we need to start doing and, and new systems we need to build or, or expand? I think the, the next administration may decide on, on, on uh, to rewrite or, re, or revise a national defense strategy, but my own view is that elements that are in there are irrefutable. The, 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 who the existential threats are to the United States in terms of national security, what the world is headed towards. Those, those you can argue, there's no politics involved in that. That's just pretty clear to me. So what, what does that mean change-wise for the Marine Corps? We are built right now for counterinsurgency, small operations on land, sustained land operations, and for like power projection, like landing a brigade on a beach. That's what we're built for. That's not how you deter China. That's how, and, and our, I, am, I am in the camp that says our first goal and the underpinnings of our, of our national strategy is not fighting, it's deterrence. It's preventing the war with the clear understanding that if, the, if, a, if some country decides to take on the U.S. tomorrow, we'll be ready for that fight. But first goal, convince them that that's a stupid mistake. Don't go there. So for that, we have to get rid of some things that were useful to us in the past and useful to us in counterinsurgency, but not a great fit going forward. Most people in the, in the past 10 or 12 months have highlighted when it comes to the Marine Corps, things like tanks. Why is the Marine Corps getting rid of tanks? You guys have had them for 80 years. We love tanks. What are you, are you crazy? I'm like, no, I'm not crazy. I love tanks. It's a great warm feeling when one's right in that, you know, this just, they are wickedly powerful symbol. But for what the nation needs from the Marine Corps, tanks are not key going forward. We need to be able to operate back in a naval environment, back aboard ship or shore, either one. That's our kind of where our strength is for the nation. And no one does it better than the Navy Marine Corps team. So we have to become naval again. We have to become lighter. We got to shed weight. We got to become what we call expeditionary. That means go to a place without a whole lot of stuff dragging in behind you and requirements just go in light go in with what you need, be able to operate really austere conditions and do the nation's bidding in places where there isn't maybe a whole lot of stuff built up and be there quickly so that uh, somebody who's thinking about, well, I think we should you know, do something that's going to mess with the U.S. I think we, you get there quickly with Marines and then they have to give it a second thought. That's what we got to be able to do. Quickly on, on tanks, I just remember at TBS, 
they had like the board with pictures for all the MOSs. And I think a lot of people chose their MOSs based on how cool the picture looked. And <laughs> tanks look cool. And, oh, they do uh, look cool. And uh, there was only like one tank spot. So there was a ton of people that, that wanted to go into tanks. I'm not quite sure what they ended up doing when they got to the fleet, but uh, it's amazing. <laughs> My best friend at the time, uh, who was prior Air Force enlisted, chose uh, air intelligence uh, because he uh, figured the wing would have the best uh, gyms. And he was a huge workout fanatic. And so, ah. so he, thought, he thought his quality of life would be better than the grunts. Little did he know, he would find himself deploying uh, in 2007 on a military transition team to Afghanistan when nobody was going to Afghanistan. And while we were going around Iraq looking for fights and, and trying to pin a bunch right. of medals to our chest, he was getting in firefights every single day in <laughs> Afghanistan. So beware of the board, young Marines. Look beyond the picture. Uh, it can lead you in some interesting places. Um, Shout out to Troy Battaglia. I don't even know if he's still in the reserves, but we got we got to find a way to mess with him if he is uh, commandant. Um, we got to find him. Good man, Batman, as we call him. Um, so, okay, what do you say then to the 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 skeptic who'd say, okay, I get it, China is the pacing threat, but you know we don't know what the future's going to look like if you put all your eggs in the china basket if you design the future marine corps to deter china by denial well what if if something pops off with iran uh what if we find ourselves in in europe what if we find ourselves doing non-combatant evacuations in south america or something unforeseen are you are you making a, a massive bet on an unknowable future I think a fair question. Um, and if we can't answer that straight in a straightforward manner, then we need to go back to the drawn board. Our premise, our approach is, first of all, is, is, there, is there a threat from China in the future, potentially? I'm there, clearly, already. That doesn't mean we're going to have a fight with China. That's not what I'm talking about. But my, my approach is, have you read what they have publicly stated their goals are. Do you understand the direction that they're headed? And, and it's more than just theory, they are doing. You can, you can see it. So that, that part, hard to argue. So if that is indeed a potential threat to the United States in terms of national security, then that gets at your point. What is it? Are you, are you overly focused on a single threat in a single area? I'm, my response is we're building a force that can match up to the hardest problem set. It's not a geographic force. Although we have a priority because everybody, every organization should have priorities, a focus. We, are, we can employ, we would employ Marines anywhere on the globe that were needed. But our premise is if you can build a force that can match up against the hard threat, the hard team, then you can use that force anywhere else against any other problem and you'll be okay. It's not custom built for an evacuation. It's not custom built for a humanitarian kind of mission after a typhoon, but you could absolutely use those capabilities. The inverse is not true. The inverse meaning if you had a, a um, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency force 
that you could go out and deter China and prevent a fight? Absolutely no, because they would be, they'd have so many advantages over you couldn't even operate in the same neighborhood. So we build a force that matches up on the high end against a very capable country in order to prevent a, a fight, in order to prevent a conflict with the confidence that we train Marine leaders to have the agility, to have the flexibility that they can take that force, go anywhere in the world and address a problem set. But the opposite is not true. You have to build against the varsity, against the hard thing, against the hard threats. Well said. My second source of skepticism, not mine. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Um, right. I've, I've, I drank the Kool-Aid already. Although you don't want people to drink the Kool-Aid. You want people. No, to do not. Them. Yeah. Um, I've tasted the Kool-Aid and I'm tasting other things and then I'm serving right. up my own brand of Kool-Aid. Um, okay. Naval integration. We've been, we've been talking when I was in Iraq over a decade ago, then commandant was talking about right. getting back to our Naval roots, our amphibious roots. And I never saw a ship disp- right. in my, you know, seven years uh, in the Marine Corps and more to the point we're Marines. Right. We kick ass. We kick down doors. You know, we're, we're not we're not a supporting force for the Navy. We're not going to deny the PLA Navy. We want to we want to mix it up, close with, and destroy the enemy. So, what do you say to that that skeptic? I think uh, we should not pursue. We should not go after naval integration for the sake of a word or a phrase. Absolutely not. We should only do things if it makes us a, a better warfighting organization, a more capable warfighting organization for the U.S. I'm, I believe that um, the way that the, when, the, when, when we do it right, when we're very good, the Navy operating in conjunction with the Marine Corps is extremely, has so many advantages over anyone else in the world. We have a wide margin of advantage there. And it's not just having an advantage, it's having it where it matters, when it matters. So if an adversary wants to control a piece of the ocean and terrain, we have to be able to make sure that doesn't happen. So I'm, we're not, we should not chase naval integration because it's cool, uh, or we just love our Navy brothers, or we're closer to them, or we, whatever. That's not the reason why. It has to be derived from what makes us more capable as a warfighting organization. And the flexibility of Marines to operate either from ship or ashore and back again is incredibly powerful. We can move that force where we want to 24 hours a day. Be in one place tonight and a whole other place tomorrow morning, never set foot on another piece of terrain. It's just an incredibly versatile mobile force. So it's not about a bumper sticker or to your point, just doing something for its sake. I will say though, I think Congressman, here one difference 10 years later from when you first heard that is the urgency of it. Frankly, I don't think the Navy was pressed a decade ago. In other words, naval integration was okay. If it's, if you want to try it, that's fine. Now there's, okay, wow, this is, uh, this is a different world. I think it's not backs against the wall, but there is a clear urgency now. A driv- by, you're driven by a competitor, right? And that, that didn't exist 10 years ago. It certainly exists now. What, have, what has been, have there been um, 
sources of resistance to your vision and your planning guidance that have surprised you? What would, what would you say you've had the, the toughest time sort of convincing the Marine Corps about when it comes to your vision? I think... Uh, Maybe the sources of resistance come from Congress, not from the Marine Corps itself. <laughs> I would say some came from within the Marine Corps, some came from Congress, and some came from retired Marines. And all of that I look at as legit, as absolutely worthwhile because either your arguments are on solid ground and that raises the bar or they weren't okay and then we have to take a half a step back and figure what where how did we come to that conclusion so uh, back to my kind of Johns, Johns Hopkins in in, uh, in school of advanced war fighting sort of mentality criticism as long as it's logical is good thing because it tests your theories it tests your premises inside the Marine Corps um, the part of the problem is you're, you're good already, right? You're not, it's not like you're losing. So you have to reshape yourself. You're already good. So why would we risk that and become something a little bit different in no. the future when this is a known, this is, we are comfortable with this. We're dominant. Everybody knows the Marines are tough and I'm not sure about that future thing. So that it's, it's uh, partly driven by a comfort in what we have today and we know. But this is all about change leadership, right? Sensing what's coming down the road. I would say in Congress, rightfully so, it's, it's um, a longer term view on paint me the picture of where you think you're headed in the Marine Corps and tell me where the risks are along the way. What does it mean? Where will the nation take risks as we move from where we are now to where, we, where you want to take the Marine Corps? Those are all legitimate also. Where's the data to back it up? Where's the war games that show this new force will work, will win? Those are all great questions. And I would say the third uh, uh, element, the retired community, some part of that emotional and some part of it, frankly, good cautionary, uh, their words of wisdom. In other words, they walk sort of in these shoes. So before you dump all that crap out of your rucksack and run over there and try to become somebody else, let's make sure we're asking all the right questions. So some from the retired community, I think, uh, I view it as positive, making sure that we're not, uh, that their, their coaching is based on their experience and their time frame. You think there's part of it that's sort of a skepticism of technology? Uh, and by that, I mean, I mean, you're talking about leveraging autonomous systems. You're talking about having small teams of Marines dispersed throughout the first island chain, you know, long range fires, you know, and I could see a retired Marine in particular saying, hey, you know, nothing's going to replace a Marine and, and his rifle. Um, you think that's part of it? I do. And in my job, I think, is to reinforce him that that's exactly right. Nothing's going to replace a Marine and his rifle. We will remain, every Marine is a rifleman. That's a mentality. It's an approach that we will not, not let loose of at all. In terms of the technology, I think, again, fair to ask the question, how much are you banking on what might pan out? But those, I think, that, that, to that argument, I respond with, look at science. This is not a flat line trajectory of the pace at which technology is changing. It's a curve. If you want to go flat line and, buy, and be very conservative and don't take any risks, then the gap between how fast technology is changing and your 
let's be cautious and stay on this straight line, that gap is going to grow. We must take prudent, um, bold measures now to have some confidence things will work. I think we have to change the way in which we describe what we think we're going to need in the future. And there is a notion, in other words, we're going to, 10 ways to Sunday, we're going to, we're going to describe this, this thing in great detail and we're going to, we're going to design it and we're going to experiment with it and we're going to learn a little bit about it and then we're going to test it out and then like four years later, let's buy that thing. Like by then, too late. Okay, that, it's too late. You got to move faster. The other thing I noticed, uh, General, is that there seems to be a very healthy and robust debate going on, particularly among junior officers, about your your planning guidance. A lot of it's taking pay, place on pages of War on the Rocks. Uh, but even, I mean, you look at, this is probably a month old, the Gazette, you got an article on shooting cyber bullets. You have uh, winning battles will not be enough in great power conflict, written by Colonel Greenwood. There's too many Greenwoods. I always get them mixed i i've i've worked i'm gonna tell a story about uh retired colonel greenwood i'm sure you know the greenwood clan yeah i do um i got to know him when i worked uh for mcmaster and petraeus at centcom Ah, he was at ida at the time right i was after that experience at a wedding uh in oregon and i was wearing my dress blues it was very hot at this wedding um and uh, let's say I had a, maybe one of the top clasps unbuttoned and I had a cocktail in my hand. And uh, uh-huh. uh, the good colonel politely contacted me and said, Mike, every time you put that uniform on, you need to wear it the right way and you need to be very careful uh, in terms of what you're putting on social media in terms of your military career. I immediately deleted my Facebook account and all of my social media presence. <laughs> Not, it wasn't just like the deactivate, the full deletion. Right. Probably the best decision I ever made, not only for my Marine Corps career, but for my political <laughs> career as well. There's a whole, my entire 20s does not exist effectively on social media and online. So I have to thank Colonel Greenwood for that great piece of advice. It is interesting <laughs> because at the same time, we we're encouraging Marines to write yeah. and get their name out there. Yep. You have to be very careful in 2020 about, your social media presence as, as an enlisted Marine, as a, as a Marine Corps officer, because you could put something stupid out there that could screw up your entire career. To your point, though, I agree. But to, to your first point, I think the idea that the Marine Corps is changing and changing rapidly, and the, also the idea that we don't have all the answers, just has unleashed an incredible amount of energy among junior leaders in the Marine Corps about, hey, I have an idea, let's try this. And we should welcome that. We, we, there was a time in the Marine Corps where we were big enough and the world was going at a slower pace where we, we created an experimental unit and we had that for a couple of years. We cannot do that today. So we're using real units that are going on real deployments to experiment with. There's a ton of energy and great ideas from junior leaders to your point about, hey, uh, I think you guys got it wrong. Let's try this. And, it, and that debate is really, really healthy for the Marine Corps. That's, that's what drives innovation. Well, and I say at the risk of blowing smoke, I mean, I, I think your willingness to engage in this debate directly, to engage 
in, in unconventional for, uh, you know, to write articles in war on the rocks and th this and that, I mean, I mean, to, to sell your, your vision and, and your planning guidance, um, it's certainly been noticed in Congress. And I, and I think, you know, when you first came out with some of your, with, with the planning guidance, it was, Oh my gosh. I mean, this is, this is bold. I mean, there's some sacred cows getting slaughtered here. Like good luck with yeah. this. But the fact that there has been so much receptivity in Congress, I think proves that if you're willing to have the debate, I mean, people are willing to listen. And they actually have informed the debate. You all have informed it. You haven't just sat on the side or thrown arrows from the bleachers. And I, I, there may be an exception to this, but in, it, I can't think of one in every discussion with the, um, a member where they had a question like, I don't, we don't really see where you're going with this, or we, we have doubts. In every case, it wasn't just, you know, crossing their arms and throwing darts at me. It was Because I required them. I said, okay, I may be off base. How do you see it? And then when you require them, okay, you got to be part of the solution. You can't just sit on the bleachers and throw Nerf balls at, you know, you got, what's, you got a better idea? That brings them right into the conversation. So they own part of it. They can't, they can't sit on the sidelines anymore. And I've gotten great coaching from really great, really solid mentoring from folks in Congress just over the past 18 months, really good. But, I mean, you got to be honest, you're, you're not looking forward to when you have to testify before the Armed Services Committee and the – I do. I, I know. I know it sounds kind of you got to be kidding me. That's our chance if, to explain why we're doing what we're doing. Now, do I like all the grandstanding and whatever? No, absolutely no. But it is our chance. That's our chance. OK, to explain where we're going and why and what what what, what support we need from Congress. So we shouldn't be fearful of that at all. You know, big, big part of your job engaging with Congress, uh, yeah. but also a, a big part of your job just engaging with the Marine Corps and getting out there and, and talking directly to Marines. How have you navigated that, particularly during uh, the pandemic? A lot like this, but still we've been, Sergeant Major and I have been able to travel a, a good bit. We never have stopped traveling. The knock on wood, you know, we've been fortunate um, in all those trips, all the right measures and all, and we have, we have escaped the having to park ourselves for 10 or 14 days, we've just been really, really lucky. But, I mean, around the world over the past uh, 10 months had, have been still able to, to travel and see Marines. And when we go, uh, the way you describe it, I think you chose your words the way, way I do. We don't go to talk. We go to listen. We may do some talking, but when we travel, we have our notepad just like when we were lieutenants and like, Okay, you know, what's on your mind? And we're taking notes and answering questions because it's hard for them to get access to the Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps and the Commandant. So we talk less and listen more. Harder, then, you're right, though. It's, it's not the same without a pandemic, for sure. And then how much of your job um, is building allied partnerships and relationship? And I guess by extension, in order to realize your vision, how are you encouraging more junior Marines to build those direct military to military relationships with uh, allies and partners, particularly in Indo-PACOM? Um, allies and partners. Are you talking about international or are you talking about? International. Yeah. 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 Not inter-service. Yeah. No, I got it. Here's where probably uh, just, again, by fortune of assignments, nothing else, not because of talent, but 
the because I've had multiple tours in Indo-PACOM and, and in the Middle East like you, you know some people and you know the forms of government and you, you're not going in cold. We went to J Japan three weeks ago and because I had I, I have worked with them, coordinated with them for years, they, a they asked to meet with you all the way through the prime minister, which is not normal at all for a commandant of the Marine Corps. There's no reason for me to meet with the prime minister of a country at all. But they ask for that because they want they want to understand where the Marine Corps is going. They they know a relationship built over years. They can trust what you're telling them. So I think on a personal level, it is constant engagement like this over a phone or in person for Marines. I think this is a leadership uh, role for us to describe. Why why are you going to create a train for four weeks? You know what? I don't understand what that does. But then. I have a son who's in Korea right now. He's a company commander, and he's he'd never been to Korea before. And uh, I spoke with him the day before yesterday, and he says, I said, how'd it go? He goes, oh, we were up at the Rod Ranges, which I'm very familiar with, the Rodriguez Ranges, training with a, with a South Korean Marine unit for three weeks in December in Korea. Awesome. Because uh, they quickly discover that language, not a problem, you know. Where you think as a captain, oh my God, we're not going to be able to communicate and my machine gun range is going to be really dangerous. You realize after about 90 seconds, okay, this is not going to be hard at all. And, and the only problem, and you're smiling a little bit, so you probably have a personal story too. I asked him, I said, well, how, how did the rest of it go? Is he, uh, did you have any discipline problems? He goes, uh, you know, just a couple. And I, I could have put words in his mouth. I said, what happened? Well, you know, they traded uniforms. So you know where that's going. In December, you have, uh, you know, my, your PFC Gallagher, who's traded away all of his cold weather gear for a red um, South Korean running suit that looks really cool, but it will not keep you warm. So it, it, and it, he was sm smiling and laughing, but uh, just, I think once they do train with another country, uh, then it's very quick. The, the language, not an issue. They desperately want to try to be like a U.S. Marine. They, you can just sense it's really fun to train alongside them. I was smiling because I was imagining what a rock in your pack it is to be the commandant's son. In, in <laughs> Although it's probably just as difficult for his CO to as a leadership challenge. Uh, it's very, very unique. When I talk with him, like I'm sure it'd be the same with you. I'm I'm his dad. I just listen. I don't coach. He doesn't ask, and we don't talk about each other's level. We, I just, I'm just his dad. I just listen, and I laugh when he talks about you know three guys in his company that traded away all their cold weather gear. I just laugh. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, okay, we're in the final stretch here. We're we now having covered all the the important stuff. We're gonna try and have a little bit of, of fun. Mm. If that's okay. All right. Um, are you able to have a life as the commandant of the Marine Corps? I mean, you live at 8th and I. Mm. Are you ever able to just sit back with your wife, watch a football game? Is there ever a moment of peace that you have? How, maybe I'll put it differently. How do you – I think it's important as a leader to be able to recharge, you know, spend some time by yourself, think, reflect, and get outside the immediate. How, how do you do that? On the one hand, clearly, when you step into a role like this, you know you are serving every day. There's no off days. You are the commandant every day. 
but that doesn't mean uh, you can't um, have your own time. Family is, is the most important to me. We have a farm in Virginia, our, our own farm. So on Saturday and Sunday, tomorrow afternoon, uh, we'll drive out to our farm. I hunt like you do. Um, that is my, that's, that's our escape place where I can, it's just our place and our, and our families. I read there, I hunt there, I drive around our four wheeler. That's my completely non-marine place. But I can, if I want to read a book that I haven't read in a while, you know, you can park yourself and look at the Blue Ridge Mountains and read, you know, for a couple hours. So we, I definitely have, we definitely have a way to step out of, not step out of the Marine Corps, but have our own time. We know on, you know, on a five minute phone call, I'll be back in here if I need to be or, or from out there. So you, you don't, it's not like you completely drop your pack, but we absolutely have an escape. Yes. And when you find that time to read, are you, is it all history or current events or do you, do you ever make time for, for fiction? How do you balance that? I make, I, I, I don't know about you, uh, Congressman, but I read a mix. It's not all history and not all politics at all. Um, mostly books that other people recommend to you, frankly. If I could read everything that everybody recommends to you and me, I, I, there's no, it's impossible, right? It's impossible. Because they all, like, you got to read this book. I'm like, I have a stack. I can't even. I, ha I, have, to, I have to just show this because I literally spent all right. last week organizing ah. books that I haven't read that have been given to me. And so I now have a plan for going through all of these. And I've spaced right. out fiction. It's, it's yep. very weird, but Fiction's it adds great. up. Fiction, yeah, it does add up. It's good. I read a little bit of everything. Okay, what about lowbrow? Are you, are you ever able to watch a TV show or a movie? Any favorites that you return to? You can admit it's a safe, this is a safe space. You can admit this. <laughs> uh, we don't watch uh, TV shows very much. Um, Cause mainly I think when, when I get home at night, it's, it's not all that late, but the time we have there, I don't want to stare at a TV screen. So we walk around DC. We have a we have a dog, and that, that's our time just to talk. So I don't we don't watch a whole lot of TV shows. We watch movies, you know, probably like everybody else. Probably the same movies like over and over and over again. <laughs> like especially the like this time of year. Like if you're not watching, like It's a Wonderful Life and a couple of others, you know, you're lying. Okay, because you do. Do you have a favorite Marine Corps movie? Or it can or be just military or war movie. I, I, I don't know about movie, but the, the series, like the Pacific, I fell in love with the first couple. I'm like, I got to record all that. And yeah. uh, maybe it's Tom Hanks or just the whole story that you had read and, you know, over a series of books compiled into one. So I think for me, that's really pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. What a, so second to last question here. What yeah. um who are your, your primary mentors throughout your career? Or what role did mentorship, and you talked a little bit about this in terms of the relationships you met, you had at School of Advanced Warfighting yeah. and, and SICE, yeah. but how, what role did mentorship play in your career? Huge, very, very big. And uh, my number one mentor is my dad, without a, without a doubt, because he, he'll pull no punches. And uh, again, I put him on a pedestal above everybody else. Beyond that, I think uh, a combination, and now I draw on their their counsel more and more and more. And it's a broad mix like the books. Some are retired generals and admirals. 
Some are, are uh, never been in the military at all. One is a, a doctor who teaches, teaches at Johns Hopkins. So I try to draw on a broad mix of them. They coach, teach, mentor me. And uh, never in a way like, you should do this. It's more like, what are you thinking about? And they, make, you know, they will never give you the answer like the TBS instructor. They just cause you to think through things in a really helpful way. Mentors, very, I, I don't know how you could go very far without them. Frankly, I don't, maybe some people are able to just self-generated. They got all the tools they need. I'm not that person. I, I was, I just feel, I mean, one of the things I didn't think about going in the Marine Corps is just those mentor relationships that I stumbled into, whether it was yeah. my first company commander, Derek Ost, awesome guy, some peer mentorships. I mean, I met Matt Pottinger in 2007 in Iraq and he's like mentored me on China. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's so Incredible. Um, okay, I lied. This is my second to last question, and this is a, right. a silly one, but I, this has been driving me crazy. Who who makes the annual birthday videos? Like, who gets to determine the creative process? Because I have an idea for one that would be the best video ever. I'm not going to talk about right. it here. It's top secret. But if you could put me in touch with whoever your creative person is, I got, I got one. It's going to go viral. Ooh. Easy to do. Easy to do. I'll put you in touch with uh, Major Eric Flanagan. He's not okay. good like Irishman. Me. I like that brilliant. name. Okay, we're not the artistic ones, but we know who is. All right. Okay. I didn't know if you were you know personally writing scripts at Eighth and I. Oh, and, you know. Yeah. No, me and the sergeant major view uh, versions of it, and I don't catch anything. And the sergeant major goes, "No, that's got to go," because he's you know like all sergeants major, they see the little smallest thing that's. Flat out, just wrong. That's wrong. So, right. That's right. Okay. Right, so, uh, Major Flanagan will get in touch with you. No problem. Um, okay. So, fi final question for you, uh, yep. General Berger. Um, when you come to Green Bay uh, mm. to pr potentially watch um, the Packers uh, on their their march to inevitable march to the Super Bowl, um, do you want to see what a good football team looks like in person? Uh, and also, I, I should note there's a connection between the military and the Packers. I mean, Vince Lombardi ah, was influenced sure. in his philosophy by what he learned from Red Blake at West Point and was fascinated with Douglas MacArthur. Now, I know that was primarily an Army thing, but there's a – really, the story of the Packers is the story of the Marine Corps is the story of America is what I would suggest. Oh, wow. At That's profound. Lombardi time, the clock at Lambeau Field is always 15 minutes fast because if you're on time, 15 minutes late, it's a Marine Corps thing. Yep. Um, so you, let's say you come to, to Green Bay, you have a standing invitation. We're, we're, at, we're, we're having a, a beer in the shadow of Lambeau Field and a, a young Wisconsinite comes up to you and says, General Berger, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm thinking about joining the Marine Corps. Uh, what advice would you have for that young Wisconsinite? Hmm. Well, I think in, uh, first of all, can't join the Marine Corps. Sorry, but you can't join the Marine Corps. You can join the Army, and you can join the Navy. You can join the Space Force. You can join the Air Force. You can join all of them. You cannot join the Marine Corps. You can only become a Marine. So, if first of all, if you're thinking about this because you want to serve your country, I think that's the greatest. That's a incredibly honorable thing. So, wouldn't first of all, just serving your country, awesome, good on you. Because it's not the easy path and you could go make a lot of money, whatever. So serving your country, good. 
then it boils down to how do you want to serve. And if you're thinking about the Marine Corps, this is an organization that has a bar, you know, that's pretty high. So you have to, you have to understand what you're getting in for. It will test you. It will push you to higher levels. It will not be easy. It will be more rewarding. Uh, it'll also be a lot tougher. But in the end, I think uh, I would offer, when, as a Marine, you are, it forces you to grow to be a better person all around. It stretches us. It's, it's an incredibly tight brotherhood of arms where every Marine knows and trusts another Marine. Even if you've never met him before, it doesn't matter. The last part, the last part and the, uh, I would tell him, you're not going to understand this when I'm telling you this, but you are, you, when you become a Marine, it's, you, are, you are that for life. You may get out of the Navy, but you don't ever get out of the Marine. You are always a Marine. So what, it will shape the, you for the rest of your, rest of your life. It's that big a deal. But Amazing. first, go to school. <laughs> Finish your schooling. Get good grades. Don't be like me. Put yourself on academic probation. Don't take that. Learn, <laughs> avoid the, the Burger Gallagher freshman and sophomore year laps. No. You know, you can, make... It builds character, but not the recommended kind of approach, no. My first battalion commander described it as, as balanced excellence. I've always liked that as a, a way to think about having a social life, but also being a professional. Uh, well, uh, General Berger, Commandant of the Marine Corps, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you uh, for everything you're doing uh, for the Marine Corps uh, that we, we both love. And uh, thank you to your family for, for letting you do it. And I hope you and your wife and the rest of your family have a very, very Merry Christmas. And we hope to welcome you in Northeast Wisconsin soon. Thanks for having me on, Congressman, and thanks to uh, all the folks who tuned in this afternoon. Have a, have a really safe Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks.